The reading this morning is taken from Genesis, chapter 44, beginning at verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And then Judah went to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore... As soon as I came to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it was given to us in love. Amen. Amen. 
You can be seated. Thanks, Jonathan. How can a person change? Can a person change? Are we, uh, are we stuck in our character? You know, it's easy for us to be cynical uh, about whether or not real lasting change is possible. You know, we have expressions for this. You know, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, you can't expect a, a tiger to change his stripes. Can people uh, really change? Can they really, in a fundamental way, become different? You know, one, uh, one recent bit of pop culture was uh, obsessed with this question. Uh, it was a, a TV series that grabbed the imagination of much of the country. I confess that I really, it was one of my guilty pleasure shows. Uh, Breaking Bad was uh, the TV show that basically told the story of one man, Walter White, his descent from being a good and much-loved high school chemistry teacher to being a murderous drug kingpin. Uh, the TV creator, uh, the show creator, uh, Vince Gilligan, said that uh, his thesis behind the show was that evil is within every one of us, that each one of us has this dark side, that if the circumstances were to go the right way, if, if things were to happen to us, that any one of us is capable of descending uh, into absolute evil. Uh, the way that he put it memorably is that he wanted to make a TV show about what would happen to see Mr. Chips become Scarface. Some of you will be old enough to get the reference to Goodbye Mr. Chips uh, about a beloved uh, teacher. In such a thesis like that, that, that evil is within every one of us, that any of us are capable of this kind of change for the worse, uh, seems almost to be verifiable. Right? If you look at history, if you look at the world around us, if we look at our own lives, it's easy to see that, yes, each one of us has the capability for tremendous darkness and evil. Right? And such a message resonates uh, with the biblical message, right? the biblical teaching of sin, that, that each one of us is depraved. Each one of us is capable of great selfishness, of great greed, of great violence and lust. That each one of us is capable of this move towards outrageous evil. Now, the other kind of change uh, we get more cynical about, the idea that someone can change from being selfish and self-centered and evil towards being good and loving and even heroic, right? That kind of change is change that the world around us is, is really very much cynical about. Thinks, well, no, you know what? People really don't learn new habits. People don't really change fundamentally in the fabric of their character. And yet... That message is just as in keeping, as hard as it is to believe, uh, with the fundamental message of Christianity, right? Now, now certainly Christianity would tell us uh, that change of that sort uh, is, is almost impossible, in fact, is impossible, left to our own capabilities. But through the miracle of grace, through the intervention of God's grace in human lives, it's not only possible, uh, but it's actually normal. It's God's normal plan for working in human lives is to move us from being fundamentally selfish, self-centered, wicked people towards being people who can model love and grace and compassion and goodness. In fact, that, that miracle of a changed heart when worked out through a community is actually God's plan for the redemption of the entire world. Not that God's going to take heroic, wonderful, strong people is his witnesses to the world, but that he's going to take broken, selfish, even wicked people and change their hearts so that they model his love for the world. 
And that's what we see happening in Judah's life here. You know, we, we said that the, for the most part, the back part of Genesis is concerned with Joseph, one of the two younger brothers of Jacob's family. But today we're going to do something a little bit differently. Typically when I preach, we look at one chapter of the Bible and just explain it, explain what's going on, what's happening, what it means, what it means for our own lives. Today what we're going to do is we're going to track a character through several chapters of the Bible, this character of Judah. Now see, the, the author of Genesis has an issue with Judah. Judah, it will be prophesied later and bears out in Israel's history, is to be the leader of this family, of this nation. Judah's the one. It's Judah's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that are going to become the kings of Israel. King David is going to be a descendant of Judah. Even Jesus, the greatest king of Israel, is going to be a, a son of Judah. And yet when we meet Judah, he is absolutely lost in himself. He's absolutely self-centered, committed to consuming the people around him for his own satisfaction. He's a, he's a wicked person. And so we're going to see over the course of these chapters how God works to change Judah's life. Because if there's not hope for a selfish person like Judah, uh, then there's not hope for selfish people like me and like you. We need to see God's power to change us. You know, we first meet Judah in chapter 37. You'll remember that's the chapter that we started this series uh, on the life of Joseph with. And the first time we meet Judah is when he and his brothers uh, hatch this plan to sell Joseph into slavery. And in this, in this conspiracy that they hatch against their brother, Judah is seen as already a leader, right? Some of the brothers want to kill Joseph. One of the brothers say, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a well and let him die on his own. That way we're not, you know, directly killing our brother. And then Judah, wise and crafty, says, no, no, even better. Let's throw him into a well and then let's sell him. Because then we can at least make a little bit of money while we get rid of our brother. It's a perfect plan. And so we see that Judah already has some gifting. He already has some wisdom. He already is a leader within his family. And yet that leadership, that gifting that he has, is bent where? Entirely in on himself, right? It's entirely about how we can still carry out our rage and our jealousy against Joseph, but how we can profit in the midst of it. And so we meet uh, Judah in, in chapter 37. And then in chapter 38, in chapter 38, the author takes a pause from the story of Joseph and gives us a snapshot of what's going on in Judah's life. It's kind of like a, if you're watching a TV show and it says, meanwhile, back in Canaan. And it tells us the, the events that are going on in Judah's life while Joseph is on his way to Egypt and then on, eventually on his way to Potiphar's right hand. And the author tells us in 38, uh, starting at the beginning, 38.1, he says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. So here's what's happened. Judah has left the covenant family. He's left his brothers, he's left his, his father and his, his extended family. He's left this special people that God has chosen for himself to live in relationship with them. And he's left and he started to build relationships with the Canaanites. He started to become more like their pagan neighbors than he has like his family. Verse 2, 
There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. So we learn this is, this is jo- Judah's love story. This is Judah meeting his wife. The author gives us only three verbs that describe Judah's entire relationship with his wife. And it's basically, he saw her, he married her, and they had sex. And, that's, that's, and then she conceived and bore a child. Judah is portrayed as entirely governed by his appetites. Judah's someone who looks, sees something he wants, and takes it. Judah's someone who's not le- being led by faith. He's not being led through reflection. That he's an impulsive man who sees what he wants and takes it, and he's governed entirely by his appetites, his selfish, selfish appetites. And so as Judah's story with his Canaanite family goes on, Judah has three children, three sons, and he finds a Canaanite woman to take, this woman named Tamar, to take as as the wife of first his oldest son. The biblical author tells us uh, that his oldest son was wicked and died before he was able to give Tamar children. This is another kind of indictment of Judah, that he's not passing down his parents' faith to his children. That they too are are starting to take after their father in selfishness and in wickedness. And so Ur, this oldest son, uh, leaves Tamar a widow without children. And so Judah does what he was supposed to do, which is that he gives Tamar, this Canaanite widow, to his next oldest child, a, a man named Onan. You know, this, is, uh, this seems strange to us, this process of taking the widow of one child and giving her in marriage to the next child, right? That, that seems weird, uh, that, that brothers would just kind of take, pass on a wife as one of them died. And usually when, if you want a way to understand the way that the Old Testament commands work, these social commands that can seem really strange to us, is that God's people were given laws that made it so they were always working to protect the most vulnerable members of a society. And the most vulnerable members of an ancient society were orphans, those who are left without parents, were widows, women who are left without a husband, and aliens, those who uh, found themselves out of their own country and living among people where they didn't know anybody, didn't have any family. Right In this society, to be a childless widow was to really be without hope. It was to be without hope of a family or of an inheritance. It was to be without hope of land and produce and a a, life of well-being. And so this, this law that was put into place where a brother, a redeemer, or the next available relative would come in and marry the widow was put in place to do a couple of things. One, it was to provide protection and safety for the widow. And two, it was to continue the family and the legacy of the deceased husband. So any children that Tamar had at this point would be considered her her deceased husband's children, and they would take his inheritance so that his name and his legacy, his land, could live on. And so the first time, Judah does what he should do, and he gives uh, Tamar to his next youngest son. But Onan uh, refuses to give Tamar a child. Because he knows that those children aren't going to be considered his, and they're going to be rivals to his children. They're going to take some of his land. And so in order to get a bigger inheritance for himself, Onan refuses to give her a child. And so God punishes Onan by killing him. We see this family now just 
taking, uh, taking advantage of Tamar, not doing what they should do for her, being bent on their own self-preservation. And so now Judah starts to put two and two together. He says, all right, I've got this woman, Tamar. She married my oldest son. He died. She married my next oldest son. He died. I've got this youngest child. I'm not giving him to her. Maybe she's doing something. Maybe there's, maybe there's something about being married to her um, that's killing these boys of mine. And so under the guise of that, he says, look, Tamar, you go back and live with your father. Go back and live with your people. And then when my youngest son is old enough, then I'll give him to you. And so she leaves. Now, you have to understand the upside-downness of what's happening here. God called Abraham's family. He blessed them. That's this family of Jacob and Judah and Joseph. So that they would be a blessing to the families around them, a blessing to the, the nations around them that didn't know God, that they would be a shelter to them. And yet here, instead of that, here they are taking advantage of and abusing this Canaanite woman a woman that was vulnerable that they were supposed to be extending love and covenant faithfulness to, they instead are taking advantage of for their own ends. And so they send her out. Well, when Tamar uh, gets to the point where she realizes, look, Judah's never going to give me the youngest son as a husband, she launches a plan that is one of those, I can't believe this is in the Bible stories. <laughs> so what she does is she gets, she'd been dressed as a widow for all these years. She takes off her widow's dress and she dresses up like a prostitute. And she goes and she puts herself in the way that she knows Judah is going to be going around the time of year that, it take, that, the, that the men would go to shear the sheep. Because what has she already learned about Judah? He's a compulsive man who's governed by his appetites, who takes what he wants selfishly. And so she dresses seductively and puts herself in a place to meet Joseph. And I'll read uh, the rest of this story so I don't have to narrate it uh, to you. In Genesis 38, uh, starting in verse uh, 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Uh, and she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So Judah strikes a deal with her. Because we can tell that he's impulsive, he hadn't planned to do this. He's, got to, he's willing to give her an animal that's still a long way away. So she says, give me a, a down payment. And so he gives her these items, his cord, his signet ring, and his staff. This is the equivalent uh, in the ancient world of leaving your driver's license and a credit card. This is saying, give me, leave some ID so that I know who it is. A signet ring is something that a man would have used to mark uh, to put it in hot wax to mark a letter or mark some property as belonging to him. Ancient staffs that, we've that archaeologists have recovered were wooden sticks that had some ki kind of stone engraving on the top that marked them as belonging to a certain family. And so she says, leave something with me that, that I know that you need, that I know that I'll identify with you. 
There's, a, there's an irony that's going on here, if you remember the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, where she steals some identifying mark of his to frame him. Here, Tamar takes an identifying mark of Judah in order to have some, some way to out him. And so here's this ingenious plan. I told you you wouldn't believe that it's really in the Bible. And then in verse 24, uh, her plan comes to fruition. About three months later, entering the third trimester, or first, ending the first trimester, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my, only, my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. So she catches him. She exposes him uh, right here in this moment. Whose are these? Identify them. In Judah, this utterly selfish, utterly uh, self-obsessed consumer of people finds himself exposed. And in that moment, he finally, finally, finally begins to admit what's true about himself. This woman, the woman who tricked me by making me think she was a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law. She's the righteous one in this. I am far more wicked than she is. I am far more guilty than she is in my selfishness and my withholding of my son for her and my failure to take care of her. I'm the sinful one. There really is hope for people that are as selfish and as self-obsessed as Judah and as us. But it starts in this moment of exposure. It starts in this moment of hitting rock bottom and recognizing I am the most unrighteous person I know. I'm the most selfish person I know. I'm the most wicked person I know. I have no righteousness of my own before God. I'm only wicked. Nathan Cole was an 18th century farmer in Connecticut who made the journey uh, during the First Great Awakening to go hear George Whitfield preach, the great itinerant minister who came from England and preached around the colonies. And he kept this elaborate journal uh, that we have a lot of historical debt to. And here's the way that Nathan Cole described the beginning of his change, the beginning of his conversion on hearing Whitfield preach. He said, And upon hear my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound, and by God's blessings, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. He was given a heart wound by God. That old foundation, the old thing that he had built his life on, was finally, by God's severe mercy, broken. And his unrighteousness exposed before God. That's what's happening to Judah in this moment. His old foundation broken up. His God has wounded him, but not to cause him pain, but to, to save him. Right? We can hear the echoes in Judah's line. She is more righteous than I. We can hear the echoes of that story that Jesus told. 
in Luke chapter 18 of the two men who went into the temple. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Right? The Pharisee goes up to the front of the temple and makes a show of it. He says, God, thank you that I'm not like other men, that I'm, that I'm prayerful and that I'm righteous and that I give all of my income. I'm such an awesome guy. God, thank you for making me wonderful me. And the, fair, and the tax collector stands at the back and he doesn't lift his eyes up. And the only words he can address towards God are, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? That God in Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. He's near to those who repent. He's near to those who acknowledge their unrighteousness and their broken foundation they've built their lives on. Right? And this story of Tamar in uh, Judah self-righteously calling her to go and be burned. We can hear the echoes of that other story in Mark 8 where Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, where she's brought to Jesus and Jesus says, what shall, and, and they ask Jesus, what shall we do with her? And Jesus says, the one without, let the one without sin be the first to throw stones. And her condemners leave and he covers her. He covers over her exposure with his grace and with his mercy. Jesus covers the broken. Jesus gives grace to the brokenhearted and, hum and humble. Right? Some of you can identify with Judah in this story. Right? Some of you can identify with this period of life where it feels like your sin is exposed and your righteousness is breaking and your heart is wounded. Right? Some of you, it feels like that's right where you are. Good news. Good news. Is that that's where Jesus is too. Jesus embraces sinners in his grace and in his mercy. He only embraces sinners, actually. Uh, it's those who refuse to admit their sin or admit their need that always left Jesus dejected. Right? I can think of a few key times in my life where I've been in Judah's shoes, where in a relationship or publicly or even just in my own heart, my, my guilt and my sinfulness have been so very, very clear to me. And everything in us in that moment wants to run away from that place, right? Everything in us wants to believe, and you may even have good, well-meaning friends that say, oh, Dave, you know what? You're not all that bad. You're a great guy. This isn't who you really are. But the only hope for sinners like us is to admit, you know what? Actually, uh, this is who I really am. Uh, this is what's in my heart. I really am this selfish. I really am this broken. And from that place... Uh, to meet Jesus in all of his grace and goodness. And so that's the, that's the meanwhile back in Canaan that's been going on. That's the work that God has been doing in Judah's life to bring him to this moment where he's brought back face to face with his betrayed brother Joseph. And it's fascinating. You, if, you, if you work out the math on these two stories, it can be kind of hard to follow the timeline. But these two events are happening at roughly the same time, at roughly the same year of Judah's life. If you work out the math of the time that it took, if Judah had his children and they grew to childbearing age and adulthood, and then Joseph's going to Egypt and he's having his own children and the seven years of famine, in both of their lives, it's been about 20 years. This is a heck of a year for Judah. Within, about one, within a few months of each other, maybe, he's been utterly exposed before his community. And he's come to this place of brokenness and grace. And then he bring, God brings him through this elaborate plan back face to face with his moment of deepest failure, 
with the, the one that he's wronged in his life more than any other, this brother of his, Joseph. And Joseph launches on this, this plan. Remember we said that he's, he's done all this thing where he, where he sends the, the, the silver back with the brothers and he frames Benjamin for a crime. And now the brothers are all before him. Benjamin's in custody. And he says, uh, he says I'm going to keep him and I'm going to let you guys go. What is Joseph doing with this plan? He's masterfully setting up the exact same scenario that his brothers were in back in chapter 37 where they're being placed in a situation where they're forced to choose between the well-being of their youngest brother and their own gain and well-being, right? Will they do it differently this time? Has their repentance gone down into the heart to the point that it would lead them to make a different kind of choice, right? We know what the old brothers did. They sold out the youngest brother to save their own lives and just to make a little bit of money. What will the brothers do now? Will they abandon Benjamin to prison? And say, well, better him than us. And go on their way. And in the miracle of grace, Judah, selfish, hard-hearted Judah, says to Joseph, who he still doesn't recognize, take me. Let Benjamin go. Take me instead. Let your servant remain. Only send home the youngest brother, because I don't know what will happen to my father if you don't. Right? These are the same brothers that before gave no thought at all to their father when they told him that their brother had died. And now he's saying, no, I can't do that to my younger brother and I can't do that to my father. Take me instead. And in this, we'll, we'll do uh, chapter 45 next time, but if you look at the very first verses of 45, when Joseph sees and hears Judah's words, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. And no one stayed with him. And Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. Right, that moment of seeing Judah's love, of seeing Judah's willingness to sacrifice himself for his youngest brother, is what led Joseph to go, this has been a miracle. Judah is a different man than the one who sold me. Judah has been so transformed. He's a different person. Judah becomes uh, the very image of love, of self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Judah is actually the first person in the whole story of the Bible that we see uh, show the willingness to sacrifice his life for the life of another. The theme that will, will, will point us towards that ultimate act of self-giving love that we see at the cross Judah becomes, in spite of all, everything he's done prior to now, one of the first and clearest foretastes that we have of the love of Jesus. Right, as Christians, when we wonder what love is, we look to the cross, and we see that love is always self-sacrifice. Love always means to give ourselves for the good of others. It means to lay down our lives for the good of our neighbors, for the good of, of those that we love. And Judah is one of the first that we see fitting this paradigm of cross-shaped love, self-giving, self-sacrificial love. If you ever wonder what God is doing in your life, and I think we all do, right? When we're hurting, when we're struggling, when we're doubting, when our relationships seem to be falling apart, when we're hurting those we love and being hurt by those we love, what is God doing in the midst of that? 
what God is doing in your life. I don't know everything that God's doing in your life. I don't claim to be a prophet. Um, but one of the things that I know that God is doing in your life, because it's what God always does by the power of his gospel in the lives of his children, is taking you from being a self-concerned, selfish person and moving you into being a self-giving, loving person. Right? That is always what God's doing in our lives. Always. Always. That God is taking a group of people, each selfish in our own ways, and through pain, and through difficulty, and through repentance, and through stumbling, bringing us to the type of people who can actually, for moments, mirror the self-giving love of Jesus. New Testament scholar Michael Gorman has said that the pattern we see of the church in the, in the New Testament is that the church first believes the gospel, right? Like Judah, we first come to recognize our own sin and our own need of the gospel. First we believe the gospel, and then we become the gospel. We become the gospel, meaning that we announce it with our words, but we also start to, in our lives and in our community, actually become good news to the people around us. We become cross-shaped, self-giving, good news kind of people in our world and in our relationships. He's moving us slowly and painfully in this, in this long arc of conversion into being people who love like Jesus. So when you wonder what possible purpose could God have for this difficult marriage, for this marriage where we just seem to constantly be bumping into each other, where a marriage that I thought launched with this world of compatibility, now it seems like we can't agree on anything. What's God doing in the midst of it? Well, he's teaching you that to lose, you lose your life to find it in Christ, that it's in dying to yourself that you learn to love. What is God doing in these difficult relationships with these children of mine? who don't seem to listen to me or respect me, and I find myself constantly on the verge of losing my temper, hypothetically, at least teaching me the long and difficult way of cross-shaped, self-sacrificial love. What's God doing in my life as I have to learn to take care of an aging loved one or a sick loved one, somebody who's just, it's just hard work to care for? Well, he's molding you slowly, like he did with Judah, from being a selfish person into someone who knows the beautiful way of the cross, laying down your life in order to find it. And it's in that power that the church finds its greatest witness. Right? You know, Tertullian, the great church father, said what? That the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Martyr uh, is from the Greek word witness. Right? That the early church bared witness to their Savior by dying for him. Right? Not by accumulating power for themselves, not by uh, getting their agenda through in the world, but by learning the way of laying down their lives for their neighbors, for the poor and for the vulnerable, for the abandoned, not only proclaiming the gospel, but becoming the gospel in their community. Let's pray.